0: Um, I did have kind of a warm up question for you just to kind of set, well I had a few actually just to kind of set it up and I'll probably fiddle with this a little bit to get the levels just right. Um, just wondering what you, just wondering if you remember anything about the process of actually writing this one? Um. In May this year, I went down to Adelaide to interview Ken Bolton. I went there because I wanted to understand how Ken does what he does, even though I was certain I wasn't going to find out. Ken's his work that might seem simple and conversational and straightforward at first, but in reality, he's pulling off some kind of magic trick. And I know how hard it is to do because for years, off and on, I've been trying to do it. Ken has been publishing consistently since 1977. So to give us an anchor point for the interview, we decided to focus on just one of his poems. And we decided on a poem called Beginning at Bashir's Coffee Shop.
1: I mean, it it begins with a description of where I am writing in the coffee shop. Yeah. Uh, but it's a longish poem, so I wouldn't have got it all done in that morning. Um, and as, as I used to usually do then, yeah, you go back to work excited because you'd started something that was all right. Um, lunchtime, you might get another half hour at it mm-hmm. at the same coffee shop and, um, and then come home and work on it the, that night. So I imagine that's what happened. It was probably written that day but probably in three sessions or so. And then I must have, I would have fiddled around with it on and off for probably a number of weeks before I was happy with it.
0: So where's work?
1: Oh, work used to be, I'm not there anymore. It's, I've retired. It uh, it was um, the Experimental Art Foundation, which is also gone now, it amalgamated with another organisation. Down in the Lion Arts Centre, it was an art gallery I ran the bookshop for them, and I was also the downstairs person that you met when you came in. So, you know, I told people <laughs> where the toilets were, <laughs> what the show was like, if they wanted to talk about it. Right. And sold books, talked to people, talked to artists a lot.
0: Right. Yeah. And if I was looking for Bashir's now, because as I said before, I went down High yeah. street this morning, yeah. what What would it be
1: today? Um Actually, I don't know. I've walked past it. It, I think the Adelaide String Quartet or something, okay, has it uses it all the time and was back then too. Uh, they're probably still there. I don't know what it's called now. It looks like an old film film theatre. Oh,
0: okay. Uh,
1: it's on the same side of the road as Imprints. When you find it,
0: right? Yep, going to Imprints.
1: Uh, so, but up the hill, closer to where you we were. Okay. Um, and. Uh, as I say in the poem, you know, there's me and some teachers there. And then the women from the arts department across used to be, used to be across the road, mm. used to often have meetings there. And, yeah.
0: All right. Let's, let's hear a little bit as much as you care to read and then I'll ask some questions.
1: <laughs> um, beginning at Bashir's coffee shop. I talked to Bashir briefly. How did the launch go, etc. The The anarchist centre, at At least least three guys guys with beards, beards, glasses, 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 one one steel-rimmed, tech tech teachers, I think. They always sit there. I sit here, or here. The women from the arts department sit there, always, but their numbers require it. A deal is stitched up, much laughter. I read the poems Tranter has sent. I like them. Oh, I know nothing of the sources. I think I've never read Ern Malley, even, in his entirety. Or Biggles. Lynn, I hear John call out. He has really read nothing except Frank O'Hara. And Ted Berrigan, John, Lynn's moderating tones. And you and Pam and Forbes and Laurie. Sometimes I wonder. I hear John subsiding. It's true, though, isn't it? Joyce, I am reading at the moment. Playing catch up. Am I taking, it in? taking it in? My point my entirely. entirely. I hear John, again. John again, an imaginary, an imaginary John. John. Are all my friends are imaginary? all my friends imaginary? Yeah. The women laugh again, rather loudly.
0: Great. I already have like ten questions yeah. on that section. <laughs> um, so there are a number of people called John who yeah. live large in your poems. Oh yeah. And this particular, John is John Tranter, who has just passed away. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about the shape of your relationship with him?
1: Um, yeah. Uh, it was never close. I, when I was a youngish writer in the mid to late 70s, um, he was sort of mist, you know, Mr Poetry in Sydney. Uh, he and Bob Adamson were vying for top dog. Uh, they were a fair bit older than me and Laurie Duggan and John Forbes, Pam Brown and people like that. Um, I mean, seven years older, I think.
0: But but when you, you would have been in your early 20s?
1: Yeah, mid-20s.
0: Mid-20s. So yeah. when you're in your mid-20s and somebody's 32, yeah, I don't know how this felt for you, but in my mind it's like, well, they're over 30, so they're basically like... Ancient,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't wasn't that so much as they were established. Established, and, um, yeah. Uh, mm, I didn't have much to do with him at all. Um, he was sort of taken up with the people who he would have been would have seen as the interesting young crowd coming along, um, John you, Forbes and Laurie Duggan. And
0: mm, you didn't feel you were part of that.
1: I was. Uh, I knew them socially a little bit but only just, and I was much less uh, on my way than they were. Um, So I never saw him very much. Um, I wrote a couple of poems that made jokes about his work, attacks, slightly snide attacks, I suppose. Uh, And he responded with a poem called Ode to Cold Joy. Mm. Um, Sort of in my style or a version of my style, I'm parodying it. Actually, quite gentle as a riposte to a you, young poet as <laughs> um, a nice poem. It's very funny. Mm.
0: Uh. So after a bit of hunting, I managed to find Tranter's collection published by Island Press in 1979. It's called Dazed in the Ladies' Lounge. And it ends with a poem Ode to Cold Joy. I'm gonna read a bit of it. Ode to Cold Joy. You open your eyes and realize it's the morning of a summer's day in Sydney, and it's going to be not a John Betjeman day, though you can hear church bells faintly across Annandale, and not a John Forbes day, though the first thing you notice is your suntan lotion on the dressing table beside a beach towel, decorated with a crude scene of coconut palms and a jet bomber, pencilling a faint vapour trail across the Malayan sky. No, not one of those days. And you think about the exact shape of your headache and the taste of the first disprint of the day and you wonder if it will be fine or cloudy. And then the hollow yet insistent sound of a Coke can rolling along the gutter fills you in. It's a Ken Bolton day. And, as if to underline the accuracy of the hesitance of your mental sketch of an approach, to the definition of the day itself, a paperboy shouts something like, New York, New York. You're not sure, perhaps no work? And when you get up wearing your shorty pajamas, you find a note on the kitchen table on a sheet of blue and white paper to say that Bill and Kerry have gone to the beach. And after that, a lunch party at Anna's, hard edged colored cocktails, to which no one will be invited. You gasp as the water gushes cold out of the shower It's enough to be having a shower in the hot blue summer morning in Sydney. An ambience that no Melbourne poet will ever appreciate. (laughs) And you almost blame them for that. But blame is very un-Sydney. So you smile and finish your shower having adjusted the warmth of the water, thinking of Bondi Beach and of the poets you know who will not be planning to go to Bondi today after all. They never do but at least one of them will be planning to write a poem about not going to Bondi. And it's perfect. As perfect as a milkshake at the Bondi... I think already in the episode we have a cast of about 20 characters that I should at least attempt to introduce you to. So, so far, you've met, obviously, Ken, who started out writing poetry in Sydney. We've got John Tranter, who has already been mentioned in the poem, and who, in this poem that I'm reading now, is having a bit of bit of a go at Ken in a very funny way. Lynn in the poem is Lynn Tranter, so John Tranter's wife. And Ken has also mentioned uh, the group of poets that that are very often lumped together, so himself, John Forbes, Laurie Duggan, Pam Brown, and as we'll get into in a minute, Tranter gave these poets the name the generation of 68, which has never really satisfied anyone. At the time that Tranter was writing this poem, Ode to Cold Joy, to Ken, Ken was a Sydney poet, but he was about to leave and move down the coast to a place called Coalcliffe with his then partner, Sal Brereton. And the story of the Coalcliffe years is one that I, I would need a whole other episode to tell, but the very condensed version is that Ken and Sal established this house just near the Coldcliffe railway station and it basically ended up being a place where they could live and invite people and publish from for about three years between 1979 and 82. And they never had to pay for it. They, they were willing to pay for it, but through a, a strange chain of events which involved... Ken showing a a council officer his printing press and the council officer being quite impressed with it and the actual owner of the house not really wanting to have anything to do with the place anymore. They just ended up being able to establish what was in reality a squat and live there and invite people to come and live with them and work and and it sounds like it was a really magical place. So yeah that's that's a story for another time but for now I just wanted to interject again and And try to give you some sense of all the many many people who are connected to this poem and uh, there's going to be more and it's not a poet's union day though last sunday was full of bickering relatives and nothing much got done (laughs) i guess that was a poet's union day though it lacked a chair we have a chair today and i'm not sitting on it it's not a sandra forbes day the light is so pretty. And
1: then I moved Actually. out of Sydney about 1979, went down the south coast to Coalcliffe. Um,
2: uh,
1: so no, I only I said hello to him at, at readings occasionally and that was about it. I didn't really have much to do with him. Um, I was running a magazine called Magic Sam. I think we published him in it once or twice, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But I would have asked him for stuff. He wouldn't have sent it. And then I came to Adelaide, so I didn't see much then either. Um, I wasn't that interested in his poetry after the late 70s. Um, I could still see it was good, but it just wasn't in the direction I wanted to head in. Mm -hmm. So I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, really. I mean, I read the books when they came out, or at least looked at them. Early in my writing, I remember, john jenkins is one of the other johns that's probably in the poem we used to love saying head first into the beautiful accident which was one of tranta's lines that we thought was very funny <laughs> and great to use like any time you wanted you know i think i'll just go down here and you'd say i'll oh, head first into the beautiful accident," <laughs> to the other person and we had probably other lines stuff from um the blast area which is a early trader book that we thought was great and crying in early infancy i think i thought was Really good. I'm not sure what I think of them now. Um, since he's just died, I've recently decided I should look again just to see, mm. and that's been interesting because some poems that I thought were pretty smart and pretty smart-assed, but that I didn't care much about, um, I find I like better now than they did then. So I was, I mean, you know, I wasn't in a very charitable mood probably back then.
0: Well, I mean. It's, it's so interesting because he's Mr Poetry or vying for Mr Poetry with Adamson. Mm. But it sounds like you're not dismissive of him at that, at that oh, point. Oh, no.
1: I mean, if he was launching a, one of his own books or giving a reading where he knew he was going to be reading more than two or three poems, you'd go along, definitely, because he was a hot shot. You know? hotshot. I thought he was good. I didn't care much about Adamson's work. It was just people made a choice usually whether they were going for the high romance of the kind of bandit poet like Adamson or um, someone who was somehow more sternly modernist, you know, Mm. um, like Tranto. And I was definitely in that latter latter camp.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, But so how do you get from sort of, you see him at launches, but actually you're then you're in Cold Cliff, and so you don't see him much at all. Yeah. To this situation here where he's sending you his poems.
1: I don't know. Um, well, he started Jacket magazines sometime in, I don't know, the 90s, I suppose, or early this century, I've forgotten. Um, and I was contributing to that quite often. Um, so there was back and forth about that.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then he also started a magazine, his own, called... Um, Poetics Journal, and I think because I write poetry, that's often about poetry or about the process of writing. Um, I sent him a lot of stuff for that, so this poem's probably written around nineteen sixteen or seventeen. Oh, sorry, 19, 16, 2016 or seventeen. By which time we're on friendly terms, but not we wouldn't talk to each other about it, anything except literary stuff, mm-hmm. and not very often. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I was still part of a faction that thought he'd overplayed his hand as he was happy to look, be seen as the leader of the modern faction in Sydney writing or Australian poetry, even mm. um, And uh, we weren't actually a unified team behind him at all. you know I hadn't signed up for anything, and um,
0: <laughs> that modern faction being oh, so, principally John Forbes, and Forbes Laurie Duggan, Alan yeah. Wern mm-hmm.
1: John Scott uh, John Jenkins Carol Novak I suppose no she'd gone by then um, Gig Ryan yeah.
0: but actually Pe- it's that old story isn't it actually you're not unified as a group you're not necessarily aligned with the thinking of the person who's named you as the group it's well he didn't name
1: sort of me I wasn't in the anthology Right. Uh, so it was you know, a grievance I could have had against him, but you know, <clears throat> I hadn't quite arrived, I suppose, by that stage, at that stage. And in 1968, I was in high school and, you know, reading John Donne, but I never thought I was going to write a poem in my life. So I'm not, I just think the name is a stupid phrase <laughs> that he chose in a really dumb way, because he thought, Paris 68, I want, it, I want that sound attached to these poets.
0: It's a pretty cool
1: number. And that anthology, apart from Adamson and Tranter and Jennifer Maiden, if she's in it, all the interest is in the, the tale. It's the young crowd who, in 68, like me, were in high school probably or first year uni.
0: Mm. You didn't even know you were about to be part of a generation.
1: No, I was thinking it's a, it's a misnamed, it's a non category. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people in that book had, didn't publish again, they'd stopped. No. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah.
0: I want to zero in on this bit. Lynn I hear John call out, he has really read nothing except Frank O'Hara. I was looking back at my collected Forbes and there's a poem to you, I believe it's to you, called yeah. Thin Ice. Yeah. And he writes, I think our sense of timing's the most important thing O'Hara taught us. Don't you, Ken? Okay, so this is Forbes' poem, Thin Ice, written for Ken Bolton sometime between 1980 and 1989. Frank O'Hara never went skating, but he liked to dance. He was a beatnik, really, despite his suit, and happy too. We don't need liquor, we just like it, is one thing he taught us. And how to stay home, where there's always mess to clean up and messages not to run. And that's what's great about Sydney. Though I don't mean the harbour, which should be covered in concrete to bring real estate prices down and make parking at the opera easy. There'll always be Brett Whiteley's to remind us of it's blue and our tourist selves, now we're here to stay. And Europe and the US, etc. can get along without us while the HMS Australian poetry sails in through the heads and sinks without a trace. The concrete arriving as usual too late for them, like Jesus when they built that grandstand and he didn't show. I think our sense of timing's the most important thing O'Hara taught us, don't you, Ken? It's funny, there's an open parenthesis in this at there will always be Brett Whiteleys, but it doesn't close. Hmm. don't know what to do with that. And I guess I just, I wonder how you think about O'Hara these days, if you think about him at all. He, he's mentioned a lot in your work, but yeah. do you worry that there's too close an association maybe made in people's minds? Oh
1: yeah, I wish there wasn't that association. Okay. Um, uh, because my writing isn't very much like his, you wouldn't I don't think confuse so. them. Mm. And uh, I'm mostly reading because he cheers me up and often makes me feel like writing, but not necessarily like writing poems like his. Mm. Um, Ted Berrigan was a much bigger influence on me, maybe not, uh, equal influence. And um, I took to him before Frank O'Hara. Mm. Um, Frank O'Hara suddenly made sense to me after I'd read Ted Berry And I don't know why I hadn't liked Frank beforehand. He's a more important poet. Um, yes, yeah, so partly this poem we're talking about today is um, is jokey about the, my anxiety about how I'm perceived.
3: Um, right. Yeah.
0: Great. OK. I'm going to get you to keep reading. But just before I do, I want to point to this other thing that happens here and just everywhere. There are many things I love about your work, but this would be probably up there in the top three. And you did it just then when you were talking, you said, Ted Berrigan would have been a bigger influence on me. Maybe not.
3: I, <laughs> so, yeah.
0: He's like, am I taking it in, this, this question? Are all my friends imaginary? It's uh, making the process of thinking and writing so visible. And so um, there's no embarrassment. It's just completely open. Here's what I think. Oh, then there's doubt, like constantly undercutting yourself. Um, I I don't really have the best question Mm. around it. I suppose I just wanted to draw attention to that.
1: Well, it's a habit and I know I do it. And I sometimes worry that I do it too often.
0: I don't think um, so.
1: The self deprecatory thing is also a habit and it's a sort of Australian custom like you. You expected to do it. <clears throat> so I don't think it actually means one is particularly humble. Just <laughs> um,
0: I can I feel like it can also mean it can almost mean the opposite, right? Like you you say to somebody, Oh like I did this the other night talking to friends, I was like, oh, yeah, no, I was so nervous when I did that. I think I was talking about my interview with Pam. Oh, yeah. And my second interview with Pam, and I said, this has nothing to do with Pam at all. Pam was an absolute delight both times. But the first time I, I said to these friends, like, oh, don't listen to the first one because I was just wetting myself the whole time. <laughs> and they said, oh, Alice, you're always saying that, you know. Um, and then I thought about it later and I thought, like, why did I feel like I, have to say, I had to hmm. say that? Because I'm sure I was fine.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I agree. Why did you have to? But I understand that it's just a kind of itch. You get it out of the way.
0: Yeah, and you kinda of get to it before the other yeah. person does.
1: Yeah, and um also usually you you know your friends aren't gonna take it too seriously. They don't think you need therapy. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um well the other thing is the poems are never planned, you know, I actually do just follow the thinking wherever it's going so I'm interested in where it goes to and that's the whole motivation for most of those poems Mm.
0: Um, well I'm going to ask you more about that as we as we go so let's let's keep reading I'll get you to keep reading
1: my vision of John is cartoon John stands by a pool back to me pretty much chinos not cargo pants, a striped shirt, sipping a daiquiri, watching the pool cleaner chug chug back and forth against the tiles, dreaming dreaming of a machine machine that would write write the the terminals terminals for him. him. The terminals. Terminals. Automatically. Automatically. It's beginning to seem a word you don't hear anymore. The past's dream of the future. We're there now, like my dream of J.T., Though do they happen automatically, like everything else these days? So it goes without saying? The real John I saw a few weeks ago, and now I have his book, Where Biggles Meets Earn Malley, as does Louisa May Alcott. They spoke so frankly in the past, is one effect, via John's coupling of the texts, or lingos, if I may permit myself in Australianism. I guess I am an Australian, and a wistful, unrepentant modernist of some stripe or order, with the old-fashioned ideas of modernity. Tail fins? The anarchists, I reflect, resemble the Marx Brothers, as, bearded, they arrive in America with identical long beards. I remember a beard coming unstuck, as Chico or Harpo drinks water. This is not quite- This is not quite modernity. Or it's the joke of one part catching up with the other. Eastern Europe. Europe. Smelly, bearded, uncool, unsophisticated. Arriving in America, the new world, ha ha. America and the other. And here my essay begins.
0: Beauty. Thank you. Uh, I missed a question I wanted to ask you earlier. Have you read Ern Rowley now? No. See, when I was in Dimmicks before, I found a copy of The Darkening...
1: Encliptic.
0: Ecliptic, whatever They've they've changed
1: the spelling. It used to be encliptic. As far as I know, just moronic if you're you're about history. All right,
0: I'm really glad I didn't buy (laughs) it because I was going to buy it and bring it to you, but then I thought, no, just get some chocolate frogs instead. Um, Perfect. you have to read it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, okay, so we're back. We're back. In this section, we're back to this cartoon of John, mm. still John Tranter. And there's these signifiers, Chino's sipping a daiquiri. He's watching the pool cleaner. So he mm. has a pool.
1: In my cartoon vision of John. I, yes. got, I don't know him. That's the thing you see. <laughs>
0: okay. I just yeah I guess it just kind of like fills out that vision of Mister Poetry, and it reminded me too of um, Laurie Duggan's poem. I think there's a couple of poems about him in the Epigrams of Marshall, oh.
3: but
0: one of them is it's actually having quite a savage go at at John Forbes, saying that he he lives near the tranter so he can sleep on a broken mattress and eat from a well-stocked freezer? No. Something like that. Okay, I know I've read this out before. Um, I think Laurie Duggan's Epigrams of Marshall might be the most precious book on my bookshelf. This thing is very hard to come by. I think I got it at Sappho. And it is so savage and so funny. Uh, Here we go. Yep. So this is epigram 1134. John Forbes rents a decrepit flat a block from the tranter's lush terrace. So he eats and drinks from a well-stocked freezer and sleeps soundly on a broken mattress. (laughs) Brutal, totally brutal. But yeah, so he's, he's this presence. And then we have this seemingly weirdly prescient moment where you're talking about a machine that would write the terminals for him automatically um
2: yeah
1: well john trader was interested in that sort of stuff and that technology and he was using it um much clunkier versions of it back then yeah right um but uh, yeah we used to all all make jokes about Tranter dreaming of <laughs> having these poems coming out without any effort and because i suppose also you know we saw him as well, adult, more middle class, and better off than us, which was probably all true. Um, So yeah, he would have a pool and there'd be a pool cleaner. And Mm. the pool cleaner thing, chugging back the forwards, seemed like a metaphor for the machine writing the poems. Yeah, right. Just like... But yeah, it's it's, um, ludicrous as criticism, really.
0: Well, it brings us, brings me to the... On the next page there is this line, I guess I am an Australian again oh. question mark. Yeah. And and that is we sort of talked about it before, that thing of constantly undercutting oneself. Um yeah. putting putting oneself down to a certain degree. But then also I guess really Trent is a bit of a tall poppy here. And and you're cutting him down a little bit, so maybe that's another Australian thing. But why, why do you say, I guess I am an Australian?
1: Oh, well, you know, what is an Australian? Yeah. Really. Um, and uh, so I'm saying that, you know, but also I suppose it's much more contested now than it used to be. I mean, um, I'm soon to be a not very typical Australian, I imagine, you know, white old guy,
2: mm.
1: um, one language only, uh, that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not a deep question and it's partly a jokey pause um, mm. and yeah,
0: yeah,
1: really produced by the word lingo. Um,
0: yeah, text or lingos you know. if I may I mean, put myself a Because lingo
1: makes you sound already immediately slightly old-fashioned.
0: It's not a word I hear that often no, anymore. No. But it is a fantastic word to use. Yeah. Um, and then the anarchists come back. These these anarchists <laughs> unsettle me. I don't quite know who they are or why they're in the poem.
1: They're just tech teachers. I just call them anarchists because they've all got beards and they're wearing <laughs> denim right. and caps and stuff. They look vaguely and it's funny to call them Leninists or whatever I call them. Terrorists or whatever. I get it. Because I know they're just harmless tech teachers. Just just four guys with beards.
0: I get it. Okay. Um, and and so that moment continues into this thought around uh, these smelly bearded, uncool, unsophisticated mm. people arriving in America. Yeah.
1: Well, that's the Marx Brothers portrayal of themselves as immigrants coming to America, mm. which they think is very funny. They're like, it's satire on their part. Mm.
3: Yeah.
0: Mm. And then there's the line, and here my essay begins. Yeah. So I It's always really pointless to ask a poet about their actual process, probably not just pointless, but a little bit boring. Um, However, (laughs) when I read your work, the question I'm always thinking is, how is it possible that he can include everything and somehow it never feels self-indulgent or embarrassing or diaristic, it just feels so light touch
1: well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, <laughs>
0: I'm, sure, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> it's like not I a don't great want, question. I don't want
1: those effects either. So, no, of course. Um, it happens yeah. partly because I'm trying to avoid it.
0: But are you trying to avoid it or is it just because of your your personalities like this? Um, like, how, I suppose what I'm really asking is like, what's, what does the work look like? And so you, and you talked before about um, starting this poem early in the day, maybe working on it a bit at lunchtime and then in the evening, yeah. and then working on it for a little while over a couple of months. But like, it's so easy to ruin a poem.
1: Well, <clears throat> there probably some people say I've ruined a lot of poems that have <laughs> been published, and I probably do ruin a poem occasionally. <laughs> but um, poems like this, you are alone with yourself and your own voice. Um, and if you've got self questioning gene or whatever your own voice makes you self conscious and so you do every now and again want to retract something or comment on it in the way that I do in there
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that's part of the thinking process I suppose mm. uh, yeah that's probably but, the answer to it.
0: but it doesn't it doesn't seem significant to you that you are so relaxed about including so much of your own process and thinking on the page
1: um, no I Uh, uh, And I don't know, if one went back to my early poetry, you might find that that once upon a time I never did that or it it becomes a more fixed habit at some particular point. I'm not sure.
0: It's funny you say that. I got your selected 90, let me get this right. I got the selected 75 to 90 out from the library.
1: That's the Penguin book, isn't it? Yes,
0: yeah. It's got a really great photo of you in the back. And um, there are a couple of quotes on the back, one from John Forbes. He says, none of his poems escapes his preoccupation with the impossibility of practically every verbal gesture or rhetorical strategy that the idea of poetry, big P implies. And then Pam Brown as well, a bit more simple and straightforward from Pam, a personal examination of poetry as a process, as a habit, as a problem, as a joke and written about mm. with ease. And when I looked at the, I'm not sure if it's chronological, but I looked at, at some of the earlier poems in that and I thought, no, it just sounds, it yeah. all sounds I've the same. I've been at
1: it forever, have a <laughs> serial <laughs> in a, offender. In
0: a good way, in the best way, you were fully formed.
1: Yeah, no, well, there you go. I didn't, I haven't thought about it, but that's probably true.
0: Okay, yeah. great, good. Um, What else do I want to ask about this section? Here my essay begins. I think that was it for that bit. If you'd like to keep reading.
3: Yeah.
1: And here my essay begins. The Lars von Trier vision of crew cuts versus the Arab headgear or how could America become so dumb after the arrival of the Marx Brothers. Though the brothers could see then and there how it very likely would. We dreamed We slept. I like the bleak romance of your poem on Sydney, The Romans. Is that what it's called? called? Calm, 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 pitiless, taking amusement, yet careful not to disadvantage the hard done by victim. The men in pants with cuffs, not jeans. Hats, braces. The pigeons, Hyde Park, St James Station. Evoked there the Sydney of my past, as if I age and witness the passing of something just before I pass myself. In one sense, yes, R.I.P., pal. If I did pass myself, one of me, 27, the other, 62, and staring at a drunk in the park, or reading the Romans, and looking up at the sky, what would I say? Hey, Dad. Hey, son. Earn Malley. Something of an anarchist himself. Ha ha. Aren't those quote marks funny? Like the past. The generations telling each other jokes they don't get. Hey, Dad. Here are the cartoon versions of my friends. Slideshow. Interspersed with quotes from Ern Malley. And my enemies. Slideshow. Quotes from Frank O'Hara. It's a plan, I guess. Though where does that leave me? A cartoon in the mind of someone, surely, a little loved, or not at all, dozing, one foot visible, say, one limb very quiet, poking out from the dumpster of history, from the dumpster of history. a very quiet, limb, a very quiet to limb, to quote the past, to quote the past. Inter-island trade begins. Inter-island trade begins.
0: Thanks. <laughs> Um, I don't know why I find the last line so funny. It's just such a non sequitur.
3: <laughs> it
1: is, but um, and you don't know John Forbes' work terribly well yet, do you?
0: Ah, I, OK. <laughs> Hang on. Is there? There's a link there, there? Yeah,
1: there, there is. Um, there's a, I think, well-known, very short poem of his about... Here Comes the Poem.
0: OK. This is called The Best of All Possible Poems. This is from somewhere between 1970 and 79. Like a dozing shark or a very quiet limb, waiting for the lecture to make it a star. The best of all possible poems relaxes, asleep in a tropical surf, beginning near the right-hand corner of the room. Meanwhile, just outside my window, inter-island trade begins. Their supply of coconuts is endless. It's a totally weird. <laughs> what the hell?
1: Dozing like a quiet, like a shark or a quiet limb in ah. the corner of the room or something. I forgot. <clears throat> and into on trade begins is probably a line from that poem too.
0: Okay. All right. I'm gonna. I'm gonna need to return to that one. I get it. So, so the other John has appeared.
1: John Forbes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, whom I was. I mean, I. He, I admired him and thought he was a very entertaining guy, but I was much less close to him. I'm not, uh, you know, I was a friend of his in terms of being a literary ally, and we always talked about poetry when we got together. Mm. But I didn't know him anywhere near as well as I knew Laurie Duggan or Pam. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I was surprised when I reread the poem just a few days ago. Yeah. That I made notes on what the what the t- topics were, how, the, how they came up, and. Mm. You know, the poem is sort of about isolation and, um, yeah, and that time aspect. Yeah. But when I began it, I just sat down and described the scene. So mm. I didn't have a plan.
0: <clears throat> that seems to happen quite a bit, that you are, you're alone and you're writing, you're thinking of somebody who's not there. Yeah. That epistolary mode. Do you feel isolated living and working in Adelaide?
3: Um,
1: in a way, I mean, when I came down here, it meant I was cutting myself off from the Sydney scene, which was where everyone knew me. Um, and, uh, you know, I came down thinking, you know, no one can write in Adelaide. When I arrive, they'll give me grants and stuff, and it'll be great. Uh, but they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: you came thinking, I'm, I'm going to be the big fish.
1: Oh, not really, but I, I thought... It won't hurt, you know, Right, um, right, yeah. and I won't be there long anyway. You know, it'll just okay. be a job I do in Adelaide for a year or two, and then I'll probably do something else. But... Um,
0: right. And you came here from Cliff, is that right? Yeah, yeah.
1: I had a residency at the Experimental Art Foundation mm-hmm. that Pam Brown had lined up for me. She used to work there for a while. And um, it was meant to be a six week residency. But I think I stayed for about two and a half months and they kept paying me and I did a lot of things. And then six months after I left, they rang up and said, We've got a job. Um, Would you like to do it?
0: Mm. Yeah. Wow, okay. And And I was an
1: unemployed poet on the Mm. South Coast, you know, with no jobs around much. Mm. So I said, Yeah.
0: And now here we are. Mm. How many years later?
1: Yeah. But no, I didn't feel very isolated. I just kind of slotted into the visual arts scene. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't bother with poets locally. I didn't start doing readings here or anything or organising anything until some young artist <laughs> said, um, "Oh, Jenny Bolt said you used to write poetry." Used to? Yeah, she was an Adelaide poet.
0: Okay.
1: And I thought, God, is that what they think? I suppose I better do something about this. But, um...
0: <laughs> but you were writing at the time. Oh yeah, or... I was kept writing. Yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, I, and for a while in the 80s, I thought this is not going very well. I'm not getting published anywhere much. Mm. Um, Les Murray had said no to that book that Penguin were going to do.
0: Penguin, I think.
1: Angus and Robertson were going to do.
0: Which book was that?
1: Oh, I forget. I mean, it was a manuscript. <clears throat> uh, and Angus and Robertson's editor for poetry wanted to publish it, but Les Murray still had the right of veto. He had been the editor for a long while. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so things seem to be going not very well for me. And I felt isolated for a while, but I think I... Well, I probably just gave myself a talking to, you know. Sort of <laughs> keep going, don't worry, it'll happen. You know. And you, yeah, do you like what you're writing? If it's any good, then why stop? Mm. Yeah.
0: There, I've been, as I said before, I've been looking at the book about... The book that's called Coalcliffe Days... Oh yeah, and there's a moment in that too where you talk about hitting one of those walls when you're living there you say my own work about which I am always ambivalent one moment certain of it the next finding myself struggling and unable or unwilling to say was going through a bad stage and I wonder how do you know when that's happening besides Les Murray's vetoing your Uh manuscript it's a pretty clear sign But, but how do you know in yourself that you're hitting a bad phase and how do you get out of it
1: just oh, you know well for me usually it means I don't start as many poems and don't finish very many at all that I like mm. um, and or they resemble everything else I've written anyway um, doesn't happen terribly often um, <clears throat> and did you say how do you get out of it yeah yeah. <laughs> Because at the
0: end of that paragraph, I haven't written it down word for word, but you say something to the effect of, um, I made some moves that led me to freer ground, I think. Mm.
1: I've forgotten
0: the (laughs) essay. (coughs) Um, The whole book is just wonderful.
1: Well, a lot of people contribute to it. It's it's a good book. It's great. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I read a lot uh, and I reread the same poets over and over again Mm -hmm. Um, so you just go to the one you didn't read last you know last time around Um, and that usually gives me some ideas or I read a lot of my old notebooks looking for beginnings of poems I've started before often you'll find some I'll find something that you know I started 15 years ago and thought was not good enough. And I look at it again and think, oh, well, it's got possibilities. Mm. I don't know. I mean, just stay calm and try every avenue. Uh, And then I sometimes also but I don't think I do this as a remedy or a way out. But I do occasionally try something very different. You know, like the book on the circus or Mm. and this recent book that caught has got just put out um, about pirates yeah um but uh but no they're not they're, they're not they're not the way um they're just things I happen to have done, so I'm no, not sure of the answer, but um I think reading is the the thing for me and reading poets that I care about
0: mm. I do want to ask you about friendship in poetry because again there are there are these people who are so often mentioned in your poems and probably the most obvious would be pam yeah and laurie duggan <clears throat> but also john forbes there's there's a letter to john forbes in um in fantastic day yeah. which is just a stunning poem
1: well he was dead though um and that's more well he, again he's a, a slightly more distant figure mm. i mean uh yeah, we well, were never best friends or anything
0: Mm. So this is a very long, pretty gossipy and wonderful poem called Letter to John Forbes, which is in Ken's latest book, Fantastic Day. I'm going to read maybe the first four stanzas here. Letter to John Forbes. Excuse, John, the liberty I take in addressing you like this. You'll pay the price of authority. Make the allowances an author must. I'm a fan. Still, and was too, your friend as well in later years. Where once you'd seen in 1976 a rival, though one you'd have thought not quite your speed. Who else writes? I'd like to know. Alan, Gig, Laurie. Pam thinks of you often enough. There are young types, young middle-aged, devoted to your work, and the young truly for whom you're a hero something your large frame was duly suited for. Does Morgan write? Mark O'Connor? Not the Bathysphere poet, the poet of depth and altitude, who got a Dithram written, or perhaps a haiku while on a bungee jump, a terse sonnet skydiving. The real one of wit and intelligence, who helped you write admonitions. Him. The other guy shaped once as Mr. Poetry, appearing everywhere, writing under sea or upside down, forgetting the most important thing would be what he wrote. I, I've also pulled out a couple of quotes from the Colcliffe Days book, one of them that I just thought was so beautiful and kind of summed up. I guess my, my, my vague understanding of how this group worked is you said, we paid a lot of attention to each other. Yes. I just thought that was so lovely. Because it's just like, it's not as if, I mean, there's, there's another bit in
2: Uh uh,
0: (coughs) that like the, the anxiety of the Australian scene, right? Is always just like, you're looking for approval from somewhere else. And you put that really well in, I'm sorry for um, messing about here. Yeah. Here. Yeah. In, in yours cordially, which is in fantastic day. You talk about Australian poetry as a, success, a succession of styles or epochs focused on action elsewhere, approval that would never come. And I guess that, that sentiment of we paid a lot of attention to each other mm. is just so... It just seems like such yeah. a positive thing. But
1: it, <coughs> it's not hard to understand. I am, no, no, no. We were three poets, you know, aged about 30, I suppose, back then. Um, with you know the beginnings of <laughs> visibility, <laughs> um, but uh we liked each other's work and we liked each other, so yeah, um, you paid attention because each of us was different, and you could learn something from from the others mm. um, and also you wanted their approval yeah
0: and did did it give you confidence to sort of look at them, see what they were doing? see the similarities and also the differences <clears throat> with what you were trying to do?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's great to have friends who, are doing, who you think are doing well and, and if you think you are all friends and you feel like you, you're somehow establishing something that will last for a while, that you are a band of people that you know, might count, who um, want to count, mm. <clears throat> um, who think they're doing something interesting. Yeah, that was all. Mm. Um, but the remarks about those remarks about Australian poetry are much more negative. Really, they're about Australia focusing on the approval it would like to get from London and New York that it's never going to get, uh, and where the styles and innovations are mostly taken up from overseas models. Mm. So that no matter how interesting anybody is here, they hardly ever get followers. Um, that's beginning to change at last, I hope, and I think. Mm. Um, you know, in that there are a lot of young Australian writers, or well young, <coughs> they must all be 45 now, or 50, who think John Forbes was terrific and uh, devoted to aspects of his work.
0: You mean overseas? No, Australia. Australian. Australian writers, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because before that, I don't think... There had been much hand on from generation to generation within Australia. Mm. Yeah, you know, there weren't a huge number of Slessor imitators or Judith Wright imitators.
3: Mm.
0: Um, yeah, there's this this feeling of something sprang up, it, it grew and it lasted for a little while and then it stopped and then something else yeah. started. But there's no through line.
1: No. Yeah. There's an interesting essay, more, a fairly famous essay in the visual arts by Terry Smith called The Provincialism Problem, where he makes that case okay. About against Australian art. But it does seem to have changed with Australian poetry lately in that I think a lot of the so-called, genera- well, the younger crowd from the generation of 68 um, began with American models, but then began to modify them and think that they were doing stuff that was different mm. and as good or better than what was coming out of America. And I think they were right, sufficiently right for writers coming after them to think that about their work too. Mm. But, you know, America and England are big sources and they've got a lot of broadcast capacity that you don't have as you were on ham radio on the south coast of... New South Wales. (laughs) Did you
0: guys have a ham radio? No, no. Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) That was a metaphor. Okay.
0: (laughs) (coughs) And and does it matter? Does that lack of approval matter? Oh. um, From the overseas approval? Um, Does it matter to you? uh,
1: I think... I think I've trained myself to stop looking for it. Uh, no, it doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I get a little bit of approval from people overseas who come across the stuff, but I haven't. Never, I don't even. try to publish over there. So, um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: no, no, local approval would do.
0: Do Do you feel that you get that?
1: Some, yeah. <laughs> I mean, who gets enough, really?
0: I don't know. I yeah. just. I worry that that. You and Pam and Laurie don't quite know how important you are to everybody.
1: Well, yeah, because we, we, we don't. I mean, how would you t- how how do you gauge that sort of stuff? Well, I can see that. I'm
0: telling you now, and I'm the authority. I'm Mrs. Poetry. All oh, right, are
1: you? Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, it's probably harmful for us to know. Yeah, If no. that were the case, it's a, a I can see that Pam is. I think that's terrific. So when I was. Uh...
0: At Ken's he gave me a bunch of things including a couple of issues of Otis Rush which he edited uh, a journal which is a journal that he edited and I want to read from this one this is the December 1996 issue it has um, Lots of names that I recognise in here. Pam Brown, Laurie Duggan, John Forbes, uh, Peter Bukowski, Emma Lou, Alan Wern, uh, John Jenkins and Ken Bolton. But I want to read this poem of Pam's from the journal. Uh, I don't know if Pam's going to listen to this and I don't know if she will love me reading this poem, but I think it's fabulous. It's called More of the Flux, and I'm just gonna read maybe the first couple pages here. More of the Flux by Pam Brown. What goes on is an assemblage. Off the phone, past a slice of natural TV, an ape called Freud, another less thoughtful, Frodo, and then downstairs to send you two slight poems for Otis. It was nice talking, Ken thinking up or through the next thing. I look around my very small desk. On my right, a book by Blancho. What will it tell me? Next to it, your drawing of Laurie, looking wild or groovy on his UQP cover. Tonight, sitting on Stanislavski's Discipline or Corruption, which I borrowed with my mother's library card, I wanted to act in 1966 and never returned. Did my mother have to pay a huge fine? How do you sustain a long friendship in poetry? What is, what are the qualities that each of you needs to do that?
1: Well, I don't know. Um, In some ways it's easy for me because I'm not living near them. So we don't get bored with each other. or find ourselves on opposite sides of arguments all the time. Um, you know, I might have fallen out. I mean, I think if I'd been in Sydney, I would have had a very different career. I, at first, it looked like I was walking away from the you know, foundations that I'd laid there. Um, but that doesn't, I, I just doesn't explain exactly why, how I've been friends with Pam and Laurie for so long, and John Jenkins, who I've done a lot of writing with. Peter Bukowski mm. uh, although again um, we're all in different cities so that might be part
0: of it so make sure there's distance good yeah. <laughs> that's a good tip yeah the next stop is very Street or Town Hall exit on the
1: right okay. in the direction of travel
0: That's that's those are really all the questions I had. Uh, the only other last thing was I wanted to thank you for finally making the, the title of my show make sense. Poetry says, Yeah. because you've but in Birds of Rome, in Fantastic Day, I think the, sec, the second line is <laughs> Poetry says, duh.
3: Oh
2: right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and
0: then in the facts, Poetry says, dot dot dot. Right. So
2: great. That, that seems right to make right. me. I'd forgotten. <laughs>